Thank you, Karen, and whoever that lady was that just told us we're being recorded. Um, yeah, um, this scripture uh, that we read is part of a, a story that began with Jesus attending a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, as I shared yesterday with our leadership team, I've had the privilege of being in uh, what is often called by church historians the four, four waves of the spirit, mostly over the 20th century. Um, and the first was as a classical Pentecostal, uh, growing up as a Pentecostal preacher's kid, and secondly, as a um, uh, being involved in the charismatic movement, uh, the Catholic charismatic movement my dad was involved with, and that's how I met Kathleen and married her. And then the, the third wave is often the vineyard and, and its impact was often called the third wave of the spirit. And I was baptized into that wave through suffering, uh, through deep burnout. Uh, they say the vineyard was for burned out Pentecostals and, and dried up Baptists. And we all ended up together in the third wave. And then there's been this fourth wave, the contemplative wave. Um, um, it's past the wind, the fire, and the earthquake to the still small voice, the voice of God speaking in the silence and God bringing us back to the contemplative life and contemplative way where we become aware of our false selves and back to our true self, as Rose has shared, our beloved, delightful selves as children of God. And this Every wave of the spirit has had one thing in common, and that is uh, they say that, you know, when the water level rises, when you have a flood, the fences disappear. And we saw that in every wave of the spirit. We saw that in Pentecostal, the charismatic, the vineyard. And now through this, this wave of the contemplative, that God is inviting us to a deeper life, uh, which was predicted by uh, great leaders that I met and knew during the charismatic renewal, that God was going to send a deeper, very powerful move of the Spirit. And I think we're actually in that, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our suffering. And I think the, the service has been so Spirit-led today. Uh, we didn't know, of course, until late yesterday that we would need to take the first part of our service just to grieve with Gord and Carol and their family and to pray. And, you know, when I was uh, praying for them this morning, uh, I was hit with, a, with a, a wave of indescribable grief. Um, how that in one moment of time, uh, a person's whole life can change as they know it. And this is what's happened. They've lost a grandma. They've, uh, the outside of a miracle that their health and well being has been uh, impacted. And, and, and that it felt like the grief was unbearable. I just felt like I was so entering into the grief of this family. And I just felt like the, the only thing is I, as I reflected on the unbearable pain 
of this grief is the only thing that can bring relief is when we come together. And there's something about grief and this river that I've been talking about that, that is released when we come together, this, rele this release of God's comfort. All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the water. Deep calls to deep. I think that Psalm 42 speaks of suffering, that suffering calls us together, brings us together in the presence of God. And, um, and Stephen, Karen, you were so spirit-led. Uh, the scriptures that we, we picked were so spirit-led. God knew this morning. And we continue to grieve with Nathan and Kate at the loss of their baby. They're, by God's wonderful generosity, we're given a time away today uh, on Galliano Island, and they were Nathan was supposed to be speaking today. Um, but everything and Rose is sharing about the shepherd and how special we are. It's just been so spirit-led. Isn't God good in the midst of our pain and suffering? We are not alone. We are not those who grieve with no hope. But we do grieve. And if any people group knows grief. It's indigenous people uh, of this land. Uh, I'm wearing my orange shirt today again because I've asked Sini, who is back with us from Lower Post, after just a remarkable and historic occasion that she was able to attend. Sini is a residential school survivor from Lower Post, one of the most notorious residential schools in BC. And uh, when we arrived in Canada in 1991, it was all over the news of uh, people going to jail uh, because of the sexual, rampant sexual abuse that occurred in that school. And it's been our honor and privilege to journey with Lower Post and with Zini. Um, and if anyone knows grief, uh, you know, the first time, Zini, when we went to Lower Post, just a week or two before, there was a horrific car accident and her, her niece uh, uh, was killed tragically. So when we arrived in the community on our first visit, it was just a river of tears. That, and those river of tears and grief uh, and sorrow were common. They were common and they've been common. The, the, the grief and loss that this community continues to suffer. And, and their tears were blended with our tears, both of compassion and grief, but also repentance that we continue to shed as we walk together on a journey of healing. So we're so blessed to have Sini with us today. And I've, I've asked her for, to take the most of this teaching time, just to share uh, and to give us an update, to tell us uh, a bit of the story uh, of her journey back home. It was such a joy for us as a church to be able to send her. And um, I talked to her last night and she's just so full of the Holy Spirit and full of, of the things that God has done. So bless you, Sini. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you now. Thank you, Gordy. Thank you, everybody. I just wanna encourage you that, you know, God is still in control when tragedy happens in the midst of tears and grief, you know, we know that God is at work. He has his purpose and we don't always understand. But I just lift my heart in prayer for the family 
you know, miracles can happen out of this tragedy. God is a good God. And I just would like to thank everybody, you know, that um, part of our church that, you know, helped to pay my way home. I, um, I just felt I really needed to be there because, you know, I shared my story and I shared a lot of my healing over the years, but I never really talked about what happened to me personally. I always, you know, made it a generation story because of my mom being the first generation to go to residential school and being shipped so far away, they could not go home and be with their family. So they lived in the school for 12 months of the year. That's what a lot of people don't understand. They never went home. And um, my generation, even though we lived in lower post where the residential school was, Here's a picture of it. This is the only part that was left. That was the band office there. Uh, the rest of it was torn down, burnt down actually. And my children were accused of burning it down. <laughs> but they were not responsible for the fire that consumed the main part of the school, which is all of this here. So, this air, this part was, you know, where we lived. This part over here was the school, the classrooms. And um, so this is me, I just want to share with you. That's my sister Bernice. This is me over here. And this is uh, Mary Johnny from Lower Post, Margaret Boya, Harlan Schilling, the current chief's aunt. And this was the American teacher that taught me in grade two and three. This is a nun that taught, that worked in Cooper Island. And I think she was in Kamloops as well. So they were moved around um, and she came to lower post. Uh, she was our supervisor, you know, like for the intermediate girls. Well, I always felt that there was a part of our story that never was told. So when we went through the truth and reconciliation, all we did was face the camera. No one heard anyone's story, no one. And I always felt that that was the missing piece to the public, that the rest of Canada didn't hear the story. And who is gonna go to the museum to go sit down in front of a camera and listen to the stories? It just will not work. Well, God intended that justice come. And he used the unmarked graves of the children that were found at Kamloops Residential School, I think, to really get people's attention across Canada. Because it was a tragedy that happened. And, you know, when you're a little child, you try to make sense of your world. You know, when you're, we were taken away, all three of us all at once, and um, it caused so much grief. My mom, you know, came out of that school after seven years, and they sent her back to Telegraph Creek, and she had no family there. So, and her brother had died in that residential school. This is my uncle Walter, this is my aunt Hannah, and this is my mom. 
So three of them were sent away and only two came back. And he's buried on the Lejac Residential School. His death was a tragedy in that place. Um, I say he was murdered, you know. They, um, they expected little kids to go into a diesel boiler with no protective equipment. And two of the boys died and one of them was my mom's brother. And they didn't even have the courtesy to tell my mother the truth. The boys knew what happened to my uncle, but what they did was they um, told my mom that her brother died of meningitis. And here in 2012, when we had the residential school reunion, a group of guys from the Jack residential school sought, looked for me and my sister and my brother and they found us and told us, this is what really happened to your uncle. And so that was the first time I ever heard the story about my uncle, you know, like perishing because of the actions of the people that were in charge. And it was such a tragedy to some of the men in our village, like Charlie Pete, who's still alive. They never got over the grief because my, my uncle's death touched them so deeply. It could have been any one of them. And so if you can imagine carrying grief like that through the generations. And then because that generation was so angry when they came out of that residential school, they wreaked havoc in our communities. They just like took their rage out on their own people. And that was the kind of environment we grew up in the effects of the residential school and how horrific it had been. And we were, you know, coming out of our own stuff. And um, so my number in that system was 155. And people had some beautiful witty signs at the gathering. And I just wish that I had been that witty to put, I mean, what they were burning in the fire was just like people were just like so touched the photographers were taking the pictures of the signs you know that people were putting in the fire well when it came my turn I had no uh, I just wanted to get rid of my number which was 155 we were never called by our names in that system we were we were the number but my number was 155 and my brother ended up with 155 on the boys' side. So him and I shared the same number. My sister was 163. Um, she didn't go up and do any burning. And my brother didn't go to the gathering. There was a lot of people that didn't go. Um, so what I did was I, I took extra boards, which was part of the residential school, and I wrote their numbers on it because the numbers are so ingrained in my brain. I could sit here and tell you every person's number in that system. Um, I just wanted to get rid of that number and say, this is it, you know? So I wrote the, the numbers down and I, I, you know, did one for my best friend who didn't go. I did one for my brother and my uh, brother's ex-wife I did hers as well. And I threw about four in the fire and just released, 
you know, which I've been doing for many years because I've been, you know, walking the path as a believer and under, and I understand the concept of forgiveness to be set free. I just said it ends here because I do not want to get sick and have disease in my body because I've been carrying unforgiveness. So it was very profound for me to really let it go. And, um, and again, forgive the Catholic Church. But I will not forget. I said, the next step is I'm going to go to the Vatican and I'll pay my own way there. And I'll stand in front of the Vatican and say, Pope, you need to do your job. You need to open your mouth and be honest about what happened. And I think that's probably going to be the next crusade because I've been on many crusades in my life. I think that's going to be a major one for me personally. Um, I understand crusades now because... <laughs> and that, you know, to me would be justice. And people got up and spoke at the gathering. Uh, people that went to residential school and they came from Fort Nelson. And we have amazing, intelligent people. You know, we were written off as, you know, being stupid, uh, not having a future and the hope. I mean, those were the words spoken over our lives, day in and day out as little children. So can you imagine hearing that you're not good enough, the color of your skin sets you apart, um, your way of life is evil. That's basically what they told us. And um, so, you know, you have to find a way to counteract all of that. And I think that's what God gave me a fighting spirit as a little girl. So every time uh, the Roman Catholic priest yelled at me and told me to shut my, my mouth and who did I think I was, I still in my heart believed in justice because my grandfather instilled that in me to tell the truth and to believe you know, that good things can happen. So even though you know, they spoke down at me, there was something in my spirit that God put there that made me stand up against it in my mind and say, no, I don't receive this. And I think all of my life, I wanted to prove to them that, you know, what they spoke over my life was not true. And that's why I went to university. And that's why, you know, I was the first person in my family to break down the barriers. And I stood because the Lord stood me up to be able to do that. And I always believed in justice. I spoke out about the RCMP and the abuses that happened many years ago before it even became public knowledge. And, um, you know, I never ran for leadership for my people, even though all, a lot of my people believed that I could have been the leader for our Casca people. I just didn't feel that was my path. I felt that my path was to be an educator leader in that realm, to make a difference for our people. I actually, always believed that world leaders would come from our people. And that was my vision for our young people. 
So when I go home, it's always to encourage, it's always to pray. And I, I don't see myself as being, at one time I wanted the attention and I wanted everyone to help me feel good about who I was. But now, you know, as an elder now in my community, I realize, you know, it isn't about me. It really is walking in believing in Jesus and um, humbling myself so that I can be there for the people from a heart level, which is what Gordy and the Vineyard shared years ago, if you can remember Gordy your first visits to Lower Post were about the heart. And um, I just felt, you know, going home, I just wanted to be there, let people know that I was there. I had a lot of relatives and people that wanted to hug me at the gathering. Um, but, you know, we were in isolation, which is another story that also, I went through the isolation for COVID because my sister's granddaughter came home from Whitehorse and um, she was in grade 11 and she went to the grad in Whitehorse and she caught COVID according to the health authorities. Um, so her, my sister's daughter and her daughter were in isolation in Whitehorse in the Yukon two weeks prior to coming down. And they were on the tail end of coming out of isolation when they came to lower post. And, um, so it basically affected us because, uh, you know, because Kiera, the granddaughter had COVID and, uh, but it was very mild symptoms. It lasted about a day with a runny nose. So I just wanna tell people how much prayer can cover you. Prayer covered us. Um, I can't explain it any more than that, that God's covering was upon my sister's house. And uh, because we had been praying and praying for people. And um, so we went into, we followed what the health authorities said, but we did not have any disease on us because I had already lifted up Psalm 91 when I first got there and prayed it over my sister in, in agreement. And so we were protected. We did not get any COVID, but we adhered to the health authorities and we stayed in isolation for 14 days. So during the gathering, we had a special tent that we had to stay under and so to keep people away from us. So we were able to be a part of the ceremony, but we couldn't interact with anyone. But people wanted to come and hug me. So they came close to us and so I had a lot of relatives and a lot of people that I went to residential school with come and say hi. So it was really uh, just a good feeling to go back to where you grew up and not have to put on airs or be something that you're not. It's just so, I can't explain it. It's like uh, coming home, I guess, in a sense, um, you know, because everybody knew me from growing up until, you know, as an adult person. And um, so welcoming and so, you know, so glad to see the people that I know that I grew up with and how many survivors there were that came, including my aunt and them who are from the, the generation before us that went to lower post, they were all there. 
And um, so I just want, you know, you to know, church, that I had two burning ceremonies. And one was for the residential school. And one was for the deep hurts that I experienced through abuse. And it was a total releasing, total releasing. There are no secrets in my life. I really understand what the verse means. You know, I'm free. My mom named me Frances for a purpose. Frances means free. So even though the Catholic priest changed my name to Mary Francis, I want you to know Francis is my English name. <laughs> Sini is my Indian name that my grandfather gave me when I was born. Um, so I'm a free person standing in front of you. I will not weep and cry the way that, you know, I see a lot of my relatives, they're in that deep, deep pain. God brought me through that in 1993 when I hit rock bottom. I've already been to that place, the deep, deep place. So I, I have a lot of compassion for my, my people that are going through it because I understand it. And, um, I just would like to encourage everybody, you know, um, I know that the stories have to be told and I know that people are probably in their mind because I was thinking I'm done with it. This is before they found that 215 bodies. I was telling myself, I am done with it. I've reached my level of healing. I don't need to deal with this, but God always has a purpose for turning us around because there's still too many of our people that are back there in pain. And um, I understand that the next generation, my sister's children as an example, my oldest son, Kevin, who's still in pain, our work has to continue because we have family members that are coming behind that are in that place of pain now. Um, they never went to residential school, but the effects of our parenting have affected our children. And even though, you know, we may have told our stories, I don't think it really filtered home to them, you know, because we are at fault as parents because we wanted so much more for our children. So we fill them with material things because we didn't know how to parent properly. And that is the pain that we're seeing in our communities now. My uh, sister's youngest son, my sister lost three of her oldest children to death. They died before their time. She had two children left and her youngest son is in crisis. And while I was home, I heard that there is a very serious cocaine addiction in lower post. And um, the chief, well-meaning, you know, is looking for ways to earn more money for the people, um, wants to open a marijuana store. But our people are standing. They said, no, we don't want it. 
because we have this cocaine addiction in our community and we need to deal with that first and get help for our young people. Um, so I've been praying against it, um, that that marijuana store doesn't open. I think it will just add more fuel to the addiction process already in place. Lower Post has the hand of God upon it. I just want you to know the vineyard. Lower Post has the hand of God on it. He's never allowed Lower Post just to fall by the wayside. So even though, you know, there's a struggle going on, we know that there's a prayer covering and the people talk about it. I want you to know, they said, we feel prayer is covering this place. And I, I've told so many people, you know, that my church is praying, we're praying. We'd never stop praying. And um, I had to stand with my sister again, you know, like um, it's so hard when you have family members going through addiction. You just feel so powerless to try to change a situation for someone. But you know that God's way is, if you really believe in God, he'll bring them through but it's gonna take constant prayer. And um, so, yeah, you know, like I, I just like to encourage everybody, please do not forget Lord, post in your prayers. Um, you know, I just, I wanted to drum, this is the last thing I'll share. I wanted to drum around the community, but the enemy sent such, so many bugs. The mosquitoes were so terrible. We had that one day at the gathering that we were, we could go out because there was a wind blowing and the sun was shining. It was a beautiful day at the, at the gathering. And then the, the bugs came back with such a vengeance. I couldn't even go outside. Uh, people tried to go berry picking and so many thousands of mosquitoes piled on them. Nobody could go out you know, other than jump in their vehicle to go, you know, to Watson Lake. Lower Post was just under, like, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Like, Gordy and Kathleen would know we could walk around before, you know. Um, you couldn't even go outside. So basically, I had to stay inside. And I think God, you know, did that for a purpose, too. He allowed it so that my focus was on the Lord and prayer. 24 seven. Um. <laughs> so, <laughs> Bernice, uh, Kathleen painted a lot of Inukshuks along the riverbank, you know where the flooding was up at the other end. She's got Inukshuks that she painted all the way up there. They're all lining the riverbank. <laughs> so, you know, that was how she dealt with the isolation. Where me, on the other hand, spent a lot of time praying and in the word and, you know, phone calls to people, encouraging people. Um, yeah, kept me very humble. And I couldn't go outside. I couldn't go for a walk. The one day I tried, I, I didn't get very far. So I just, you know, stayed inside as much as possible. And um, thank goodness my daughter sent me a mosquito net. You couldn't even buy mosquito coils to burn. They were sold out all over in Watson Lake. 
we went to Whitehorse, they were sold right out of the store. There was not one mosquito coil you could buy. So I came to Vancouver and yesterday I went looking finally because I you know, felt a little better um, and looked around and Vancouver had none. I found three at Canadian Tire. And I was like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> mosquito coils were a dime a dozen before. Now you can't even find them in the stores. So I was able to ship some to my sister Bernice. So hopefully they'll get there. <laughs> so thank you everybody for praying. And uh, I appreciate it and really, really am grateful. Wow, thanks so much, Sini. What, what a rich and uh, blessed sharing, not only telling us the story, but you have ministered grace to us um, just out of the grace that God has poured into you. So thank you, thank you so much. What a privilege for us to journey with you. What a privilege for us to be, as I've said from the very beginning, on this journey of mutual healing. Um, and we need healing. And so in your healing is our healing as we journey together in this. And um, I, I was sharing with our leadership team yesterday, what a risk you and your mom took when you know, and this has been so underlined over the last month. What a risk you took to invite us to come to your, your community. And your brother Walter was chief at the time, and he blessed that. I, I just am overwhelmed by the risk that you took. The risk of, because of, of what we represented. We represented the church. We represented the non-native colonial uh, Canadians, and, and we're, we're all trying to come to grips even to this day. Uh, this was the headline yesterday in the paper by an Indigenous elder, and it says, we're all in this canoe together. Uh, now, he said, we're all in this canoe together now. And this elder's point was that we're either going to learn how to be together or we're all we're going to drown if we don't. And thank you because the Lord has raised you up as a prophet, as a spokesperson, as an intercessor, as a mediator, as a stateswoman to stand in the gap of this deep wound in our country and uh, to be an instrument of healing by embracing it in your own life. In the, in the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, call number uh, 60, uh, 58 to the church is for the Pope to apologize. <laughs> So we will work and pray with you. And I had a vision um, of the Pope coming to Canada and standing before Indigenous elders 
and then getting on his knees on the ground and kissing their feet in weeping tears of repentance. And we are going to pray for that day, for that moment. He has done that with other people groups in the world. So we are praying for that to happen here. It must happen here. And I would think it would be awesome if you could be the one to, to be there. There's a delegation going in December, you know. So <laughs> maybe we'll get, if we can raise some money and send you with that, we will. We will send you. We will do that. I promise. We will find a way, if it's possible, to get you there. Uh, Wab Canoe is one of my heroes. I say Wab for prime minister. Love his books. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's kind of a essential training for any team that we take to lower post now to watch his uh, eighth fire series, which is available through the CBC app, which I encourage all of you to walk, watch. But for him to stand up like he did this week and to publicly rebuke um, the Minister of Indigenous Affairs in, in, in Manitoba, but to do so in such a classy way, in such a non-violent way, but firm. And, and it, it evoked an apology. It evoked a repentance. And I just thought, what grace. So I believe you, Sini, that many of your people, including you, are key for the leadership of our country. And we're going to see God do some amazing things. So I'd like to just take a moment with everybody and just hold this story. And maybe we, we can end the, the recording there, but grace and peace to those of you that are watching this by recording. Encourage you to read the calls number uh, 50, uh, 58 to 61 in the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action and to uh, reflect with us on how we can uh, continue to be instruments of healing. So we'll turn the recording off, but for those of us that remain on this call, I'd like to just invite us to a moment of silence again for a couple of minutes and just to hold uh, Sini sharing in our hearts. Uh, I think it's just important to hold that, to reverence this story, to honor it, and uh, then we'll uh, wrap, wrap it up for today. <laughs> 